Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloem. One of the most powerful books I've ever read, and one that's profoundly influenced how I view things, is The Demon-Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark by the late Carl Sagan. One of my favorite things in it was Sagan's Baloney Detection Kit. It's a set of critical thinking tools designed to help us use basic logic to evaluate the often spurious claims presented by pseudoscience and people trying to influence our thought with arguments that just don't stack up when examined closely. So recently, when our friend and sometimes co-host Kendall Hall told me about a special class her father teaches at Fresno State University, I became intrigued. Raymond Hall is a physics professor at Fresno State and teaches a critical thinking course titled Science and Nonsense, Critical Thinking and the Methods of Science. Much like Carl Sagan's baloney detection kit, Dr. Hall teaches his students the tools they need to evaluate the claims of pseudoscientific belief systems that rarely stand up to the methodology employed by scientific thinking. Daughter Kendall and Father Raymond join us now to talk about this important topic in a time when we are constantly bombarded by doubtful claims and conspiracy theories. Kendall and Raymond Hall, welcome to Blue Dot. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Well, you're you're a physics teacher at CSU Fresno. You love teaching science in general and physics specifically. Tell us about, you know, what what do you like about teaching physics? Oh, well, you know, it's um this is passion for me to understand how the world works and physics is kind of a very elementary branch of science that explores the details of how the world works and it's just an awful lot of fun to to have the students kind of come in with their kind of uh, Aristotelian views of the world and to kind of share with them what we've really discovered about the world and the universe and how it works and kind of take their kind of uh, native common sense and give them a now professional kind of engineering or science level of common sense. And it's it's really fun to see that transformation and 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 to see sometimes the look of shock on their face when we find out that the universe really behaves a little bit differently than we might have intuitively have understood it. Well, and Kendall, since you teach physics also, just like your dad, do you want anything you want to add to that? Yeah. So my dad's passion for physics uh, inspired me to also study physics. But I think that sort of my love of physics can be can be summed up in uh, engineers want something to work. Physicists want to understand why something works. Um, so we're just driven by this this desire to understand what's happening. Very cool. Well, I I love physics. It was my favorite course to teach when I was a high school teacher, science teacher. Okay, let's talk about this really interesting course that you teach, Raymond. It's called Science and Nonsense. Is that correct? Yeah, although it has a subtitle, which is The Art of Critical Thinking. Ah, tell us a little bit about how how you came to teach this course. Well, it turns out um, a little bit of a happy accident in that when I came to Fresno State back in 1999, it was about three or four years past when the entire CSU system to kind of be in line with accrediting bodies uh, decided that every student must take a critical thinking class as a three unit GE course as part of their degree requirement. And that that requirement still holds today now, 20 years later. So it's kind of a, a fantastic opportunity. Typically these things, uh, these kind of courses were taught by philosophy professors but there's not enough philosophy professors on campus to serve every single student. It turns out there's 23 campuses in the CSU system with over 450,000 students. So they opened it up such that any department or any 
professor could teach a critical thinking class if they met certain uh, learning outcomes. And so as scientists, we we thought this was a great opportunity to get in there and inject some kind of like scientific thinking to align with critical thinking outcomes. And uh, and so I kind of inherited this class and then and, and reformulated it to kind of, you know, follow my passions and what I want students to learn about. Okay, well, if you were, give me like the the catalog course description or elevator speech version, give me a short version of what is this class you teach? Well, in essence, a critical thinking, to back up just a moment, uh, is not as well defined as one might want it to be, right? If you Google what is critical thinking, you're going to get a number of uh, definitions. Um, and so every professor kind of approaches this course. We have certain learning outcomes, which is, well, they have to know about deductive versus inductive logic evaluating evidence, things like that. But uh, other than that, though, for instance, on our campus, one can fulfill this requirement by taking a forensic speech class and learning how to use rhetoric, which has elements of critical thinking. But I think its deficit is that it doesn't really address evidence and considering what is good evidence to bad evidence. It doesn't really address how we define science, which I think is kind of an important component of critical thinking. So I feel like we offer through the College of Science and Mathematics on our campus, a well-defined version of critical thinking that does something that I think is extremely important in critical thinking class. And that allows students, hopefully, to have a fine-tuned sense of how to tell science from pseudoscience. And that's that's kind of what the thrust of my class does, is that we, we want students, when they leave with a college education, to really have kind of a very fine-tuned baloney detection kit to be able to tell science from pseudoscience. Well, you mentioned pseudoscience. Um, give us some examples of pseudoscience that you use in your course. Oh, well, thanks. You know, it turns out today, um, uh, one strategy I use is having students put together presentations and kind of look at all of the best arguments that a proponent of a particular kind of idea might have, and then also then state what they found out about criticisms of that idea. And today we are going to uh, have our first presentation by students on the idea of ancient astronauts or, you know, the kind of chariots of the gods type thing where they believed that humans needed extraterrestrial help to build the pyramids or carve out those giant heads on Easter Island. And so I love this topic because it's such a great icebreaker to get the class going. And so that's one example. UFOs, Bigfoot are some of the ideas we look at. Towards the end of the semester, once we've kind of looked at some of uh, the tools that we are developing to kind of analyze ideas and arguments and evidence, uh, we start talking about more things like vaccine denialism. We also talk about um, homeopathy uh, and the lack of science behind it and getting more uh, kind of things where we have to understand scientific studies and being able to read abstracts of papers. But but this ancient astronauts idea is one of my favorites because it opens the door to some, some of our most, our initial tools. Well, and there's been a lot of coverage over um, now UFOs are called UAPs, I guess. Uh, and there's <laughs> been a lot of stuff going on with, you know, NASA studying it. What, has any of this new stuff entered your course? Well, certainly. So next week we... Maybe it seems a little bit backwards, but we're going to be talking about um, UFOs. And uh, typically the students will give kind of a history of the the kind of controversies with UFOs. Obviously, Roswell, New Mexico comes into the discussion. 
And then they will talk about the latest kind of uh, discussions that just happened in our own halls of our, our National Congress. And we, we do parse them and, and, and think about them from a critical point of view. Bringing it back to ancient astronauts, one of my favorite aspects about discussing ancient astronauts is it, it, it allows us to discuss a very important tool of critical thinking uh, known as Occam's razor. And so, you know, Occam's razor is often misstated as the simplest theory is the best. So we, first of all, I correct that with my students and remind them that really Occam's razor is the hypothesis, the least amount of assumptions, right? The fewest assumptions needed is the best. So it's simple in a very specific way, looking for lack of, for the one that has the least amount of needed assumptions. And so Eastern Astronauts allows this fantastic discussion of Occam's razor because we can look at like the Easter Island heads. What are the hypotheses on how those were constructed? And we have like amateur archaeologists that have some pretty good ideas on how maybe ropes were used. Uh, there's evidence of rock chisels and, and tools that they used on the island. And so you can kind of frame it with what the archaeologists say. And then we can talk about Eric von Daniken and his claims from Chariots of the Gods that aliens must have, you know, helped them with anti-gravity beams. And so it, it's really nice to be able to lay out a list of, well, what what are the underlying assumptions of von Daniken's theory? And so hopefully students will lead to the idea, well, there has to be aliens and they exist. Well, do we have evidence for that? Well, it might be that aliens exist, but do we have evidence that they've actually traveled here? And what would that entail? And there's these underlying assumptions and they kind of go layers deep. So to travel between stars means traveling faster than the speed of light or very long lifetimes. And that seems like we don't have any evidence for that. Matter of fact, traveling faster than the speed of light seems to be really against the rules of physics as we know them. So that's a pretty big assumption to be making. And if you look at the other side, the other hypotheses that just demand that perhaps there was trees on the island so they could make rolling logs and, and have rope and twine, uh, we can compare the two uh, kind of hypotheses on how those stone statues were made. And, and it, it really throws into sharp relief that the Von Donneken theory seriously violates Occam's razor in a number of ways. And so it's, it's a wonderful kind of um, initial pseudoscience to discuss because it opens the door to some uh, really important tools of critical thinking and exposing the students. Yeah, aliens with anti-gravity beams sounds really cool. But, you know, <laughs> I, I'll, go, I'll go with that ancient people were very smart, capable, and motivated – and so, you know, I'll just go with ropes instead. That's that's Occam's razor working for me anyway. What what are some characteristics, if you could kind of lay out a few things to be on the lookout when you know, you know, the, this has the characteristics of pseudoscience, false science? Oh, thank you. So this was actually inspired by Carl Sagan. He had this idea of a baloney detection kit. And he does mention that, you know, pseudosciences seem to have certain characteristics and First of all, to be a critical thinker, we, we have to be open-minded, right? So we have to be open to changing our views in light of new evidence. But we also should have some pretty serious criteria on what kinds of new evidence will allow to change our beliefs. And so I'm always asking students to try to find this tension between being open-minded and critical, you know, and uh, skeptical. So the characters of pseudoscience I, I put out there as kind of red flags. It doesn't mean it's a pseudoscience, but if you're going to be investing money in it, or if it has something to do with the health of you or some of your loved ones, or if you're just kind of worried about its impact on society, these 
are kind of red flags that means you might want to do more research before you make that investment. And so one of the biggest is this idea of does the proponent put the burden of evidence on the critic, right? It's like the idea that, well, I know UFOs exist unless you can prove otherwise. That's a huge red flag, right? And we learned that really it's up to the folks that are making the claim to provide adequate evidence to convince us that their claim is the correct one. Uh, this is uh, also sometimes stated as extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence, right? And so the most important one is that that burden of evidence being placed on the critic. Yeah, I know one of the characteristics of any a good scientific hypothesis is that it's falsifiable and you can you can you know you can gather more evidence and find out like well this isn't quite working we're going to have to correct it science is a self-correcting process it's not really a thing it's a process and it's ongoing um it evolves if you will uh, whereas pseudoscience is you know pretty much locked in it's it's aliens or whatever exactly go ahead kendall your passion for this class and for the subject is is really showing in this discussion you seem very excited but as a true scientist, right, you wanted to investigate whether this class was making a, a difference, right? If, if the impacts were what you wanted them to be. So you wrote a research paper with your wife, my stepmom, Dr. Kathleen Dyer. And in it, you two use the term epistemically unwarranted beliefs. So can you explain why you use that term rather than pseudoscience? Sure. So it's it's a mouthful, right? Epistemically unwarranted beliefs. First of all, epistemic means of or relating to knowledge or knowing. So epistemology is the study of how we know things, right? And so if we don't have um, adequately empirical evidence to support something, we would say that's epistemically unwarranted to believe in it because there's not sufficient evidence or logic to put the evidence together to get us to those conclusions. And we wanted to kind of expand out because if somebody believes that 9-11 uh, was an inside job or that we didn't go to the moon and it's all one big hoax, those aren't really necessarily pseudoscience because there's not somebody trying to make a claim about a scientific idea that, that isn't supported. It, it's, it has to do with beliefs that should be rooted in evidence but really aren't. And so we kind of wanted a term that could allow us to talk about, for instance, science denialism and uh, conspiracy theories, because those are also important um, for a critical thinker to be able to distinguish, you know, how much should I put my faith in these ideas? And so we kind of wanted to expand the term to get outside of just more narrow range of ideas, which might be considered pseudoscience. What were some of the big takeaways from, from that study for you? Well, to describe just how we did it, we had a survey instrument where we asked students to kind of evaluate on a, a Likert scale. Uh, I don't believe to highly believe, or, you know, I definitely believe. And uh, we, we had an instrument that had 60 questions, 20 of which were actual scientific facts about the world, and then 40 that were more of these kind of pseudoscientific ideas. And... Uh, we administered this uh, pre and post to various courses to see if we could change, you know, if people change their minds about any of these topics. And so that was kind of how we designed it. Mainly, though, the impetus was here I am teaching a critical thinking class. I am a person that is showing my students that 
empirical evidence is important. We should make our decisions based on evidence. And I realized after teaching this class for 10 years, I didn't really have any hard evidence that one of my main learning outcomes that students will believe less in pseudoscience was being achieved. I didn't have empirical evidence to do that. So uh, I decided to remedy this situation. And so uh, luckily I had uh, married a, a scientist. She's a, she, her PhD is in child and family science. They use uh, both uh, psychological and sociological methods which means uh, uh, she had expertise in designing kind of survey instruments like this and, and how to analyze them. And so it was kind of really a perfect match. So we came up with this strategy of seeing if classes like mine that address pseudoscience move the needle and help students, you know, not, you know, distinguish between these. We also wanted to test an axiom that was handed down by folks that care about this that said that students believe in pseudoscience in proportion to how much they understand science. So we thought, well, let's take a research methods class that typically doesn't even talk about pseudoscience, but just teaches students how science works and see if that course reduces their belief in pseudoscience. And as any good scientist, we also want to just have a control group of students involved in GE classes that nominally don't speak about pseudoscience or science, you know, just as a control. And so that's what we had. We had three groups. We had just general GE classes that didn't speak about science, courses that were specific to teaching psychology uh, students how to do science, and then our critical thinking class. And, uh, and then we compared the results of our survey. And it turns out, interestingly, only the critical thinking class that addresses pseudoscience changed anybody's mind about pseudoscience. The research methods class had really no effect which kind of shocked us a little bit. And so this was an eye opener and uh, it kind of gave us, at least it was also fulfilling for me that indeed the class was having the effect that I was hoping it would have. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation on critical thinking skills with my special co-host, CSU Chico physics professor Kendall Hall, and her father, Raymond Hall, physics professor at Fresno State. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. Let's return now to our conversation with co-host physics professor Kendall Hall and her father, Dr. Raymond Hall. Hall teaches a course titled Science and Nonsense, Critical Thinking and the Methods of Science at Fresno State University. So this class seems to be really effective. So maybe you could dive a little bit into the specific tools that you're teaching your students. Sure. Uh, so one thing is just to actually get some ideas of pseudoscience on the table and kind of say, well, here's the claims. And then what we typically point out is that, look, these claims typically are not empirical, or if they are empirical, uh, they're done with such methodology that the results can't be trusted. And it opens a door to discussions about why we do science at all. Why, why are these methodologies that we've developed over the last 300 years so important? And, uh, so, for instance, um, Dr. Dyer, Katie, my wife, uh, she teaches a research methods class for child and family science. And she's actually just recently written a textbook directly aimed at the kind of methodologies and techniques 
that are used in her discipline. And she, based on what our findings were, she said, oh, the first chapter or two chapters of my book has to address pseudoscience. And so she used the findings of the study to actually uh, infuse some important stuff in her class. For instance, vaccine denialism, uh, maybe something called the Mozart effect, you know, where they claim that babies listening to classical music grow up to be better mathematicians. Um, there's a number of pseudoscientific claims that are made in her field that she brings up and then uses them to great effect to show what's the difference between how people arrive and believe in those things compared to how we can use empiricism to find out that those aren't true and actually learn that indeed techniques to raising our children or strategies to get productivity or uh, behaviors changes. How, how do we do that effectively? So that's kind of one major outcome from our study was that we are trying to advocate that in every discipline, if you have a book on your discipline, please mention pseudoscience and how it differs from the science in your field to the point of some strategies that I use in my class is I, I think I'd break it down into like three main things. One is the initial weeks. I'd like to convince students that, that maybe they can't trust themselves. Famously, uh, Richard Feynman once said that uh, it's pretty easy to fool people. And you also have to realize the easiest person to fool is yourself. I'm kind of paraphrasing. He said it probably more eloquently than that. But um, so I have a number of strategies that try to convince students that we all have cognitive biases and we fall into those. And so, for instance, uh, a really famous one is confirmation bias. There's something called the Wasson card experiment, where you're asked to turn over a card to kind of evaluate whether or not a statement is correct. And it turns out this psychology experiment has shown over and over again that humans have a bias to look for confirming evidence rather than disconfirming evidence. And, and Dave, you already brought up the idea of falsification and how important that is. But it turns out inherently our naive approach, if we're not told otherwise, is to seek confirmatory evidence. And that kind of goes against the essence of science, right? So the first thing I try to convince them is we all have these biases that kind of kind of lead us astray. And so to, to recognize biases such as a selection bias, a thing called subjective validation, where we tend to count the hits and ignore the misses when we're given a statement about us like a horoscope. And just kind of the challenges of, of eyewitness testimony, how our perceptions and our memory aren't perfect and they often work great, but what are the instances where they are less than reliable? And so that's my first strategy is to try to open that door and convince students through a series of kind of in-class uh, activities that there, there's reason that we should not trust ourselves sometimes in certain instances. And, you know, it, it made me think of something that uh, is going on in the real world um, is social media is, is that whatever your biases are, Social media will, the algorithms will tap into what they are and just keep feeding that to you. And so you're in this, you know, bubble echo chamber where that's all you're getting. And, you know, which is one of the things that's going on in this country, why things are so polarized. You know, that the idea of being open-minded and uh, listening to an argument that maybe makes you uncomfortable is an important component of my class. So, as I mentioned, all students have to make get up as groups and make presentations, and they're kind of forced to uh, show both sides, right? And there's a danger in this, right? That I mean, oftentimes uh, when people claim the Earth is only six thousand years old and they want to have a debate with geologists, 
we feel that that kind of makes it look like these two arguments are equivalent and then academics are entertaining them both at the same weight. So that's a danger, but we still have to have students. And I tell them, listen, it's oftentimes when we're engaged in um, a, a disagreement that we don't even carefully listen to our opponent's argument. We are too quick to be forming arguments against what they're saying. And we haven't even allowed them to say it clearly and process it with them and make sure you understand their position before you engage further. And so I, I think this idea of being fair and give everything a fair hearing and making sure that we are engaged in discussions where we aren't cherry picking and, you know, fighting against, and talking against a straw man, uh, you know, a, a less uh, robust version of their argument, but actually trying to address their argument. And so that's an important component of my class is to try to get folks to uh, have enough confidence in their own reason that they can listen to others uh, with an open mind. It really looks like, um, thankfully, this introductory physics course that I'm teaching here at Hugo State that my colleagues uh, developed and, and I'm changing a little bit can really help address this. In some of our first labs, uh, you know, we give them two hypotheses and it really tests some, some of their intuition, but it's really hard for folks who are like, I'm right, this hypothesis is right. And I'm like, well, you have to prove that. You have to give me physical quantitative evidence to show that that hypothesis is correct. So you have to disprove this hypothesis, right? And lend evidence to this other one. And that is something that I really emphasize in this course. Um, and I really hope that that's something that they can take away is seeing, oh, like, like I actually have to show someone uh, in the first quiz, one of the one of the parts of the question is, how would you show that this person is wrong? And I say, if you tell someone they're wrong, they're not going to believe you, right? You really have to lead them to the conclusion, right, that their understanding of that particular concept might be wrong. Kendall, is there, can you give us maybe like a simple uh, example from your physics class of something like that, where, you know, you can kind of run through that briefly with us? Of course. Uh, I find that the very beginning of the semester, we're really taking a deep look at Newton's first law, which is that an object at rest remains at rest uh, unless acted upon a force and an object, uh, you know, remains in motion unless acted upon by a force. So it's the idea that forces aren't indicative of motion, but how that motion changes. And a lot of folks come in thinking if something is moving, there has to be some net force, right? That there has to be some greater force pushing on it to keep it moving at a constant rate. But we show through some examples that that's not true, right? That forces are directly related to how that motion is changing. So just because something is moving in a specific direction does not mean that a net force is in that direction. And one of the sort of easiest examples is to take someone into an elevator and put them on a bathroom scale, right? Their weight says 150. You press the up button. You know, you're going from the first to the fourth floor right off the bat there, you know, what the scale reads is going to go up, right? Because you're accelerating upward, but then you reach maybe the second floor and you plateau right? you're going a constant speed, but your weight is the same. It's 150. It's back down to what it was when you're at rest, right? Indicating that you're still moving, but there is no net force. Right. So it's 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 sometimes as simple as, you know, putting someone on a bathroom scale in an elevator um, that really shows them that 
oh, force isn't related to, you know, motion itself, but how that motion is changing. Yeah, that's a good, that's a great example. You want to go into the, go ahead with the next section, Kendall. Yeah. So I was wondering um, how might these tools come in handy in other areas of study or the real world? You you touched on you know how this research paper changed uh, Dr. Dyer's textbook that she wrote, but you know I'm wondering what about the real world? You know maybe an introductory physics class or you know sort of just things that you you see every day. Well, I think um, one aspect is that. As you were pointing out, uh, the wonderful example of of Newton's ideas, um, really the Newton's first law, right? That a body in motion tends to stay in motion in a straight line forever unless otherwise acted upon by some other body, right? This is so uh, hidden from us in our world, right? We have these kind of Aristotelian notions that are what we might call common sense, um, that a body wants to be at rest, right? That's that's what we thought for centuries. And amazingly, Galileo and Newton were able to tease out something that friction was preventing us from seeing the true underlying nature of the universe. And, and this is just what gets me so excited is that pseudoscience, I think, speaks to folks because they have curiosity, right? And so how do we take that curiosity and get them to put a tiny bit more effort in to get enough basics about science so they can really see the beauty that underlies the universe. I, I, the universe is so much more interesting. The actual facts we've learned about the universe are so much more interesting than the pseudoscientific things offered to us on the History Channel, uh, ancient aliens, for instance. You know, like how did folks lift those rocks and make Stonehenge? Well, there's this guy named Wally Wallerson. He's a, a retired uh, construction manager. And in his backyard, he's lifting five-ton chunks of concrete using nothing more than bricks, boards, and making the thing into a big teeter-totter and raising it six inches at a time over the course of a day and showing how you don't need diesel-powered equipment to raise t these multi-ton rocks like they did at Stonehenge. And that our primitive uh, ancestors were not primitive. They were absolutely clever figuring these things out. and. Uh, Offering alternative hypotheses like that might be one of the most important tools is to teach students to go and seek alternative hypotheses, think things through, and don't just take the first hypothesis that's been handed to you, especially if it involves a guy with that big hair saying aliens, right, in the meme. Just uh, a thought came to me is like, we tend to think of ourselves as more intelligent because we have so much technology. Um, my attitude is the opposite. I think that my ancestors were probably smarter than I am. Well, we have more basic knowledge out there and the internet um, is an extraordinary uh, resource, but it also has a lot of misinformation as you were touching on. Social media, um, misinformation is out there. So that kind of gets to the core of why I think a critical thinking class taught appropriately is really crucial. Uh, one other aspect I'd like to touch on of our study is that we used the pretest, which is a survey, as I mentioned, of various you know topics that we feel are unwarranted in the belief because they just don't have the empirical background to support. And what we found, and we're surveying college students, right? These are folks that, you know, are allowed into the university because they have good grades. We have a certain, you know, threshold. So they already have to be fairly educated before they can even come here. And most of these students are in their sophomore, junior, or senior year. 
And we were asking them these basic questions about pseudoscience. Well, in our literature review, we also looked at things like Gallup polls and, and other resources that examine the beliefs of citizens in our country. And it turns out that our students believe in pseudoscience just as much as the general person in the public. And this is like almost at a point towards graduation. So this, to my mind, is a big, uh, bright warning light going off saying, Red flag. Red flag. If a student gets a baccalaureate degree from our institution and still believes in a majority of these pseudoscience, we have failed them in a very important way, right? And so uh, that's kind of our, our resounding warning cry is that the student populations don't seem to believe less in pseudoscience, even though they've been in their perspective fields learning a lot. And, and certainly they are learning the content of their field. We're still producing good engineers, but you know we might be producing engineers that think vaccines cause autism and that's bad, right? That's bad. We need to be able to give them better tools. And so that's kind of our main rallying cry from our study is that every field needs to kind of find out the naive beliefs that are actually somewhat harmful and address them early on and, and use them as a means to describe why science is important and why we've developed these tools. Another thing too, uh, we, we addressed a number. We asked 40 questions, 40 different kind of pseudoscientific topics and then we, to be able to analyze that and talk about whether we've changed people's minds, we wanted to kind of group those pseudoscientific ideas kind of meaningfully into groups. So we actually used a sophisticated uh, statistical technique called a factor analysis that looks at correlations between students' answers. And uh, I thought I'd just share this kind of interesting finding that surprised us a little bit. So out of our 40 questions, uh, we ended up grouping them into the following categories, uh, paranormal, things that are related to religion, health, extraordinary life forms is what we end up calling one, conspiracy theories, and ghosts, and, and after-death kind of things. And uh, it turns out that when we did the factor analysis, a couple of things we classified in one way, it turns out the factor analysis told us we needed to reclassify it. One was anti-vaccination. We thought clearly anti-vaccination should be in health epistemic unwarranted beliefs in pseudoscience, such as the idea that the Mozart effects there or homeopathy or that GMOs offer some kind of health risk. We thought that, you know, anti-vax should fall in there, but no, our factor analysis clearly put it in with conspiracy theories such as Holocaust denial, moon landing hoax, and chemtrails. And they said it's a better fit. People that believe in those things are more likely to believe in anti-vax than folks that believe in homeopathy works. So it's interesting when you apply science that uh, it shows you some of these things. So here we're applying science to anti-science and uh, kind of aligning, well, the same kind of strategies that might move the needle on getting somebody to believe that homeopathy maybe is not a credible source of medical intervention. Uh, those techniques are not going to work on the person that believes that uh, the MMR vaccine causes uh causes autism. So we're learning too, by doing these studies, uh, interesting things on how to develop pedagogies. By the way, conspiracy theories are the hardest things to change in our study. It seems that the, move, the needle moves the least on conspiracy theories. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our look at the tools of critical thinking employed by science with Kendall and Raymond Hall. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot.
And we're back, and thanks for listening. Let's return now to our look at using the tools of science to become better critical thinkers with my co-host, CSU Chico physics professor Kendall Hall, and her father, who also teaches physics at Fresno State, Raymond Hall. Dr. Hall teaches a special course titled Science and Nonsense. When I was um, sixth grade, uh, Carl Sagan gave a talk. I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and he was giving a talk at our local city college called Mount Sac. And uh, I remember going and hearing him ask a question, is there life on Earth? And saying, could alien civilizations determine if there was a civilization on Earth? And he used an old slide projector, and uh, it was kind of my first exposure to the man. And then later, he, of course, had the Cosmos series, which was phenomenal. Um, but I think other folks that have inspired me since then would be some of the contributors to uh, journals such as the Skeptical Inquirer, especially a, a gentleman named James Randi, who was a magician um, who offered this million-dollar prize uh, and uh, to anybody that could kind of demonstrate under controlled circumstances that they had paranormal powers. And uh, we, we recently lost him. He, he passed away a couple of years ago, but uh, he had a, a conference that was organized on an annual basis, and it would be just a great meetup where you could see f the likes of folks like uh, Brian Green, the physicist, or uh, or Bill Nye, the science guy, or uh, Richard Dawkins, um, uh, other folks that have kind of combated pseudoscience. Penn Jillette. Penn Jillette and, his, and of course, Teller, who, who had that show on Showtime, that really investigated a lot of things in a very meaningful way and got kind of got the uh, the analysis out there to the general public. And so, uh, yeah, all of these folks and everybody that I've met through that conference are inspiring. I'm also a huge fan of another podcast, which is the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Steve Novella and his crew are doing really good work at analyzing and trying to get some of these uh, critical thinking tools out to a population. And uh, um, as we need more, uh, like your blue dot, uh, out there to, to kind of spread the good word of critical thinking. You've mentioned that conspiracy theories are one of the hardest things to change folks' minds about. Um, and I think that you you mentioned in the past that you give something back to students when you take something away. And so if you, for example, manage to sort of convince someone that it's pretty unlikely Bigfoot is traipsing around Matt Shasta, in this scenario, you're taking away their belief in Bigfoot. But what are what are you hopefully giving them in return? Well, we do cover cryptozoology, right? And I think a lot of students are a little sad. Now, I don't know, there are people that are very invested in this idea, right? And so um, it, it hurts that, you know, folks that really were hoping to go out and find Bigfoot, um, and, you know, we were kind of showing the biologists kind of are hinting that we really would have found something by now if there was something to be seen out there, that a bunch of giant primates would be living amongst us and being sighted as often as they are, and we have never found a single bone or body or even piece of DNA that wasn't identified as something known. But then we can talk about current research. For instance, our deep submersible vehicles that are finding life forms at the bottom of the ocean that, that are just astonishing in their character and also things like the, the discovery only a couple decades ago of these things called uh, smokers that are at the bottom of the ocean that actually have life forms that live uh, on a different chemical reaction other than photosynthesis and the weird aliens that are there. I mean, they really do look very alien like Th those life forms around the black smokers and the, the deep sea vents, the mid ocean ridges are definitely 
some of the strangest life forms you'll ever see. True. And, and here they are on our own planet, but in a very inaccessible and extremely ex exciting place to be able to go uh, and so uh, and explore. So it's kind of like I definitely have a couple of videos exploring some of these life forms and what we've recently learned about them uh, to try to like re replace that and say, well, scientists are as excited as you are about finding new life forms. And guess what? We have found some new life forms. It's, it's something that does happen. And, but you have to apply science and you have to have kind of this um, exploration kind of a mindset, which actually a lot of the folks that believe in cryptozoology do. They want to go out and set up camera traps in the forest and try to get photos. But it kind of leads me to another idea that, you know, hoax is a really important uh, alternative hypothesis of that famous Patterson Grimlin film. We look at that and you know, how come we haven't had a video of, of, of a Sasquatch since then, things like that. But uh, to answer your question in another avenue, you know, UFOs, uh, people really want to believe there's other life forms out there. And we certainly, I think many scientists would probably advocate that the likelihood that there's other life forms out there is rather high, given the number of stars, planets, and galaxies that we've discovered. And the fact that we've We've got really solid evidence of exoplanets' existence, something that has happened during my lifetime. Exoplanets were a hypothesis when I was a kid, and now they're absolutely certain that there's exoplanets out there. So it's exciting to think that there could be life forms on those exoplanets. But have they been here and visiting us? That's something that a lot of students and a lot of folks just really want to believe that that's happened. And uh, you know, it's, it's so exciting, so many movies about it, you know, so many science fiction stories about it. But one thing that I give back to them is, well, I believe we're visited by things from outer space, but I'm not sure they have pilots. And so I kind of segue into, do you know about near-Earth crossing or asteroids? Remember those dinosaurs? <laughs> and uh, we kind of get into an interesting conversation about how many asteroids are there that might collide with the Earth? And how do we know about them? And how do we find them? And what do, what have we learned about the solar system in just the last two decades that we didn't know prior? And uh, I think, you know, the fact that an asteroid could hit us and wipe us out and that we, we actually have sophisticated uh, technology at this point, we might be able to do something about it, is something that I think goes a long way to getting them excited about space and what we know about space. And it, it doesn't kind of follow the lines of, of, of aliens, but but all the kind of tools we might use to discover aliens are also part of making sure that life doesn't get wiped out on Earth. So that's kind of a fun segue that I, I use fairly effectively. Yeah, I was reading an article just yesterday about a study from the University of Cambridge and Caltech in the U.S. on United States voter attitudes about climate change. It was pretty shocking. It showed that nearly half, 45% of U.S. voters don't think climate change is a problem at all. And 41% of them think, well, maybe it's there's climate change, but it's not caused by humans. Um, the, the underlying message of the study was not just that. It was that the distrust people have for academic institutions and research. And I'm just wondering if you could give me your take on that. And Kendall, if you want to add to that. Well, it's, it's, it's a huge hurdle. And I think it aligns, at least from what I've read. And I'm not a, I'm not a social scientist but I know some, <laughs> and, uh, I think this aligns with the problem of conspiracy theories and why they're so hard to move the needle. When somebody invests in a conspiracy theory, in essence, they are anti-establishment, right? There's a distrust of authority. And 
I mean, we have to look in the past that authorities maybe have earned um, some disrespect, but scientific authorities are somewhat different unless you understand the peer review process, how there's checks and balances. It's hard to understand that scientific authority is quite different from authorities. But then people also, those that distrust scientific authority can point to some pretty bad mistakes that, and mostly that are more like government intervention that misused science, such as not letting people know about fallout during the original tests in Nevada, or some of the experiments that were done on prisoners and things like that back in the 50s and, and earlier. They can always unfortunately point to some mistakes made by authorities but they misunderstand the overall essence of science and couple that with the fact that these conspiracy-minded theories often are associated with other kinds of ideologies that might be uh, political, religious, that reinforce this idea that we can't trust authority. I'm not sure how we move the needle on that. Uh, it's, it's a big problem. One thing that I think we can do at the college level in these kind of critical thinking classes is to kind of show the power of science. And one way I like to approach it is first teach students the tools of critical thinking, such as recognizing biases or cognitive biases. Something we haven't touched on very much is appropriate use of logic and recognizing logical fallacies when they're used to get to wrong conclusions. And I purposefully put things like, ancient astronauts, UFOs, and cryptozoology early in the semester because I think most students don't have a large ideological investment in these ideas. So it's easy for them to understand and apply these tools. And, it, and there's no kind of like emotional turmoil, hopefully, generated. I mean, there's the occasional Bigfoot advocate that is pretty upset when they learn that, that the evidence doesn't support them. But for the most part, most people are not invested. And so it's pretty easy for them to learn and apply these tools. Later in the semester, we start thinking about things that might be more challenging to the students, such as uh, climate change denialism. How old is the earth? There's a lot of folks that believe the earth is less than 10,000 years old. And at that point, I've kind of shown them how science works and how we know the Grand Canyon is multi-million years old. And so they're, they're a little bit more equipped. They have these tools. And then that's kind of left to them. Will you apply them to these things that your ideologies might be kind of making you less inclined to apply these ideas? And I think I just try to plant those seeds, right? Plant the seeds and then hopefully during the course of their further education and when they get out in the world, maybe these seeds will take root and they'll start questioning these things that are more challenging for them personally to address. On the topic of climate change, I would just like to mention that, you know, Chico State has these critical thinking courses and, you know, it's a GE requirement. Um, so if you're a student looking to take a course that can teach you more about the science of climate change, there is a critical thinking class, Inquiry into the Science of Climate Change in the Earth and Environmental Sciences Department. Now, this might not change folks' uh, sort of opinions on authority, but I think that courses like this are very useful and important that do a deep dive onto a very specific and impactful uh, pseudoscientific belief or epistemically unwarranted belief. I'm delighted to hear that. I would love to see the syllabus of that class. That's great.
Kendall, I, I would like you to mention something about, um, we were talking earlier uh, about your physics class. Um, there's something really wonderful about the way physics is taught by you and your, your peers. Tell, tell us about that. Of course. So I can't really take much credit for this. I am teaching in the model of my colleagues, Dr. Brooks and Dr. Lin, who have been working on this for a long time. They've actually studied how people learn physics, right? How to best teach people physics. And so just like implementing this class and seeing the the results, right? And publishing that in a research paper that you've actually done this analysis, my colleagues have done similar analyses on this style of teaching. It's called studio physics, where people learn by doing. There is minimal lecture and they go through uh, guided activities. Some of them are much more guided than others. Uh, for example, in every module, they have to do a, a lab. They have the write-up and what they do is they create two experiments to either test hypotheses or apply ideas that we've learned. And they're like, why two experiments? Well, because you always need some corroboration, right? You don't want to trust the results of just one experiment. And so I don't just tell you, you know, that that acceleration is force divided by mass. We go out into the hallway and we drag folks on, you know, on, on a cart and say, hey, look, we're going to change, you know, the size of the person. Okay, what happened to the acceleration? We're going to apply more force, you know, apply 40 newtons. Okay, what happened to the acceleration? So we derive these, these laws. We go out there and we say, hey, what is changing, right? Because telling someone an idea is not the same as having them discover it themselves by interacting with the world. Dr. Raymond Hall and Dr. Kendall Hall, Raymond from Fresno State, Kendall from Chico State, uh, really appreciate you guys sharing your passion for science education and this, this fascinating topic of critical thinking and applying science in our daily lives. Thanks, thanks to both of you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. Thanks again to our sometimes co-host, astronomer and CSU Chico physics professor Kendall Hall, and her father Raymond Hall, physics professor at Fresno State University. And I will leave you with something that the late Carl Sagan often said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I would add that often just ordinary evidence isn't even provided by those making such claims. The next time you are confronted with something like that, and you're not sure about it, remember to do what all true investigators do. Follow the evidence, follow the data. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. Our theme music, Big Wave Dave, is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot.